Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm talking all about small intestine bacterial overgrowth or SIBO and the different diets and how they can help to manage symptoms and go alongside treatment with my guest Phoebe Lapine. For those who don't know Phoebe, she is a food and health writer, gluten-free chef, speaker, and the voice behind the award-winning blog, Feed Me Phoebe. Named by Women's Health Magazine as the top nutrition reader of 2017, Phoebe's debut memoir, The Wellness Project, chronicles her journey with the autoimmune disease Hashimoto's thyroiditis. She is the host of the SIBO Made Simple podcast and author of the forthcoming book by the same name, which helps those newly diagnosed or chronically fighting small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Phoebe's work has appeared in Food and Wine, Marie Claire, Self, Glamour, Cosmopolitan and Mind Body Green, who named her as one of the 100 women to watch in wellness. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband and Beagle. Welcome Phoebe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And I, I've personally struggled with SIBO multiple times. And I came across your podcast several years back and I found it to be really useful. I know you covered a lot of different subjects over the years, but remind me, I'm sure that you covered it in one of the episodes about your personal health history and why you decided to um, do what you do. Sure. Well, I'm so glad you found it and it was useful. Um, So I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's way back when I was 22. So that was a long time ago. Won't give exact years, (laughs) but that was kind of my first foray into um, the holistic side of health. I was working as a chef and food writer at the time and really was wearing myself into the ground, Um, but eventually kind of started to use my skills in the kitchen to explore the kind of food medicine approach and overhaul a lot of my different lifestyle areas. And that's kind of what I wrote about in my book, The Wellness Project. But then right after the book came out, like, so I want to say like seven months after I started to experience these like really, you know, strange gut symptoms all over again. And like, you know, a lot of people with thyroid issues and certainly for myself, like I've had IBS symptoms for a lot of my life. Um, but this like seemed kind of new and different. And I thought I was doing everything right, you know, per my research for the last book. So I just started drinking more kombucha and eating more beans and fermented foods. And I was just making myself more and more miserable. Um, so eventually spoiler alert, got diagnosed with SIBO and that kind of, I don't know, changed everything I thought I knew about gut health. It just opened up this whole other world of possibility of, you know, these people who have so much dysfunction that the list of, you know, 
good gut advice that a lot of microbiome specialists are offering, like just doesn't apply. Um, so I found it to be really interesting. Hence why I started a podcast on the subject and interviewing a lot of the practitioners out there, because unfortunately, you know, there's still a lot on the research front that needs to be done in order to understand some of the mechanics and the whys behind SIBO. Um, but there are a ton of practitioners, practitioners who are dealing with this kind of stuff every single day in their practice and have really, um, developed, a really diverse toolkit I'd say. And so, yeah, that's kind of what, um, gave way to the book. I just basically am in the business of writing books. I wish I'd had when I was diagnosed with certain conditions. Um, but yeah, if you want to get into the specifics, I had hydrogen dominant SIBO and, um, I have a lot of root causes, Hashimoto's being one of them. Yeah, we're definitely going to dive into, well, I do have a, a full episode on SIBO, but it was way back at the beginning of the podcast. I think it was episode number 35 with my guest, Amy Hollenkamp. So I'm going to link that in the show notes as well, um, just in case there's some different information, because SIBO is a really common problem, especially with hormone imbalances, rather than just trying to lower your estrogen or your estrogen levels yeah. and boost your progesterone, like look under like what is going on with that. And a lot of people have SIBO. So as a basic introduction, can you give your explanation as to what SIBO is and some of the common symptoms? Yeah. So it stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And really it's an issue of location, not type. So in the wellness world, I feel like we throw around the language a lot of like, quote unquote, good gut bacteria, but for the most part, people are really referring to your large intestine. That's where all these critters have various jobs, um, especially, you know, in the most basic element of the digestive process and just helping you break down some of your indigestible fiber, um, insoluble fiber. And they also have a huge relationship with your immune system and your hormones and like have a lot of chores that, you know, we're just still beginning to understand. Um, but in the small intestine, there is no role really for bacteria. You're not supposed to have very many, and certainly not really many that are like permanent members of the population. Of course, you know, there's constantly bacteria coming in through the nose and mouth. Our digestive system was designed to neutralize them, um, to a certain extent before they reach the small intestine. But even once they reach the small intestine, we have these mechanics to make sure that things move through swiftly and an opportunist wouldn't pull off the highway and take up permanent residence. Um, but in the case of SIBO, that is what happens. And it can happen through a variety of different reasons, kind of the buckets being, you know, that bacteria is not killed in the first place by your stomach acid, by um, bile acids, pancreatic enzymes, or your own immune system. Um, and then second, the mechanism called the migrating motor complex, which kind of street sweeps, um, the debris after a meal, um, stops working. That's kind of the biggest category for a lot of people. And then there can be just structural issues. And I think this is really applicable to women. Um, one big structural issue is like an, an, some sort of abdominal surgery where you may, you know, not even notice much of a scar afterwards. Um, but there could be internal scar tissue that forms that prevents your organs from moving properly. And the small intestine is huge. It's got the surface area of a football field and it's really long and windy. So if you think about it, any sort of pressure on that little road can turn like a four lane highway into a one lane highway and cause some sort of, you know, overgrowth or buildup. Um, so those are kind of the, the simplified um, root cause list, but there are a lot of hormone issues that are subsets of that. Um, 
And then, so once what happens once you have bacteria that are overgrowing in your small intestine is that they're competing for food at your dinner table. So this is where you absorb your essential nutrients. That doesn't happen in the large intestine. The large intestine is kind of like your dumpster um, where, you know, scavengers feed off of the leftovers. But, you know, we need some, you know, the small intestine is where essentially like you are reaping the benefits of your meal. Um, so when bacteria are there and they're eating some of that food, um, they're releasing gas. And since that gas is now so far from an exit ramp, it can be really uncomfortable. So I'd say the hallmark symptoms of SIBO are, you know, similar to IBS. So IBS is gas, bloating, diarrhea, or constipation, or a combination of the two. Um, but that bloating and SIBO is like very pronounced because again, it has no where to go. And I would say like the gas, you know, in addition to what could come out one end, like burping is a really strange SIBO symptom that I personally experienced. And that was one of the things I was like, hmm, I'm not used to like burping all the time in the middle of my meals when I've like not ingested any sort of bubbly beverage. Um, and then, you know, with bacteria there in the small intestine, since it's not designed to withstand, you know, something other than ourselves, there's a very thin mucus layer that separates our immune system from our, from the contents of our small intestine, which is not the case in the large intestine. There's quite a thick mucus layer. So when the bacteria are there, they can eat through that mucus layer and then your immune system's involved. And then there's just a ton of inflammation that can arise. Then the damaging of your intestinal wall, the tight junctions, which can lead to leaky gut slash intestinal permeability. And then that kind of gives way to a whole host of like autoimmune adjacent symptoms that are a little bit more insidious. So, you know, can be anything from brain fog to joint pain, food sensitivities, weight loss, weight gain, depending on what type of critters are overgoing, depression, anxiety, skin rashes. It's a very long list. Um, but I'd say that most people really notice their symptoms right after eating. Um, since again, it is very much, you know, a correlation between the food coming in and, um, the gas creating some un uncomfortable symptoms. And there is that huge connection between IBS and SIBO. You'll probably know the statistic better than me. Is it around 70, 80% of people with IBS actually have SIBO as probably a root yes. problem? I say over 60% because it's the numbers rising, but you know, choose to be conservative on that. But yes, it's the vast majority of IBS sufferers have SIBO as the root cause. Um, so, you know, it's great to know more about it. Um, I think some people can unfortunately get a little bit too caught up in the idea of just killing the bacteria and kind of similar to IBS. IBS is like a descriptor at best of symptoms. Um, but SIBO similarly is not a disease. It's just a symptom of something else having gone wrong in the digestive system and often several things as we kind of um, went over those buckets. That's definitely mis the mistake I made for many years, just having a very allopathic approach, like kill, 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 let's yeah. get rid of the bacteria, doing round after round of herbs and even trying the conventional antibiotics. Yeah. And I was frustrated that it kept coming back and it's because I wasn't addressing the low stomach acid the fact that my gut yeah. wasn't producing bile the fact that my thyroid was underactive so that I agree that it is really a symptom um, but it can be very problematic but even those who maybe don't have the hallmark bloating and digestive issues yeah but they have something like acne or psoriasis or mm -hmm. thyroid issues it could be a cause of the problem and there is that two-way street with that hypothyroidism in particular and yeah. SIBO, could you talk a little bit more about that? 
Sure. Yeah. So this is something that, I mean, it didn't even really come up in my research just on Hashimoto's and really like SIBO, kind of the silver lining for me was just getting to like really fully understand kind of the nitty gritty of how our gut plays such an important role in our hormones. So, you know, first and foremost, you have your, your T4 and your T3. T4 is your inactive thyroid hormone. T3 is the one that your body needs to be readily available um, to, you know, have a whole cascade of functions, um, off the back of it. So that conversion for most people, well, for all people happens in the gut. Um, unfortunately, most synthetic thyroid hormones that people take via prescription are only T4. So really like you are relying on your gut to do that job for you. Um, and I do say that cause I think it's unfortunate since so many people have hypothyroidism as a result of Hashimoto's the autoimmune component. And therefore a lot of people with autoimmune disease have something wrong with their gut to begin with. So, you know, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, are on really high doses of this medication and it's just, they're not able to reap the rewards of it. Um, there are other types of medication that supplement actual T3, which is why I say, you know, sometimes the conversion doesn't happen there. You just take a T3 pill. Um, but you know, that's something to talk about with your doctor if you fall into that camp. So if you don't have a healthy gut already, that conversion is gonna, you know, be problematic. So then if you don't have enough T3, if you're not making that conversion, you are not going to have enough stomach acid. You're also not going to be able to absorb your B12 and your B12 is what fuels the migrating motor complex. So you're going to have issues with motility. Um, a lot of Hashimoto's people have brain fog, which is kind of a result of the low B12 and also constipation, um, motility, which is that migrating motor complex. Isn't always kind of, doesn't always correlate to, you know, constipation or diarrhea. It's not like something that helps your motility as a laxative per se, but I would say like Hashimoto's people like, like can really attribute like stagnation to their condition. Like your body's just like kind of slow and cold and <laughs> not moving properly. Um, so then, you know, for a lot of those people, if you are not evacuating properly, that could lead to estrogen dominance. And then estrogen dominance is one of the reasons why you may not be converting your thyroid hormones properly. So everything, unfortunately, is a vicious cycle. And I'll also say that, you know, not having enough stomach acid, not having a migrating motor complex that's functioning properly puts you at higher risk for food poisoning. Um, also not having your gallbladder too and the bile acids there. Um, and food poisoning is one of the biggest kind of root causes that have been verified for SIBO. Um, so we can talk a little bit about what happens with food poisoning if you're curious, um, cause it is kind of a case of acute autoimmunity. Um, but I think it probably very, very common for, for people who have certain root causes, um, like Hashimoto's that would, you know, lead to low stomach acid and some other protections not being there anymore. Yeah, please do talk about the the food poisoning connection. And I love that you mentioned the gallbladder and even something like the appendix. Many doctors just like whip them out if they start to malfunction <laughs> just a little bit. They're like, oh, they're not necessary organs you can survive without. But even the appendix is believed to kind of re-inoculate the gut after food poisoning. So mm. it, they could be risk factors, even things like tonsils being removed. That is an immune tissue and it's there for a reason. So when yeah. you just take these things out of the body, you're at high risk of contracting viruses and bacteria and parasites. And yeah. And then you have even like the best laparoscopic surgery, you have that internal scar tissue potentially, because mm -hmm. um, those are 
abdominal, <laughs> abdominal removals, appendectomies and getting your gallbladder removed, I imagine as well. Um, so yeah, so food poisoning, which is also, so there's a test for basically that as a root cause for SIBO. It's got a different diagnosis code, post-infectious IBS. There's a lot of terminology that can just like be interchanged in the SIBO world. You're like, well, is it SIBO? Is it post-infectious IBS? Are they the same thing? They're pretty much the same thing. Um, so what happens is, you know, a pathogen, an opportunist enters your body, probably because of there's like low stomach acid, it's able to take hold. So your immune system does what it's designed to do. It fights it. And, um, it sometimes, you know, it usually wins. Um, but for some people, there's a case of kind of mistaken identity. Molecular mimicry is the kind of official term. So when the immune system releases one of their antibodies to fight the toxins in the pathogen, that can accidentally attack the nerve cells of your migrating motor complex. Um, so that is kind of, so essentially you're sick for a few days, then you feel better for the most part. Although some people who have had this type of SIBO will say, you know, my gut was never the same and they probably have an easier time, you know, tying it back to that acute event. But for a lot of people, you know, a stomach bug, whatever it is, you feel better after a few days, but then so like, you know, kind of the bad bacteria itself is no longer part of the picture, but then the bad bacteria is what kind of sparks this slow progression of when your migrating motor complex is not working properly, then, you know, new bacteria coming into the body has a chance to become stagnant and overgrow. So a lot of people will then just start to notice like weird IBS symptoms cropping up a month or so after that event. And, you know, that's because of that slow process, um, of SIBO. So then there's kind of, you know, for a lot of people with that type of SIBO, maybe you have certain risk factors, maybe they're not that big of a deal. Some people, you know, can be cured with like a one and done round of prescription drugs if they're, you know, caught early enough or herbs, whatever it is you choose to treat. Um, but then there's kind of a subset of that subset that will have kind of an ongoing autoimmunity. So it kind of sparks the immune system to continue producing, um, an antibody that continues to attack the nerve cells of the migrating motor complex. And so one of the, the reasons why people do kind of go ahead and pay for this additional testing to verify that is because if you know you have that kind of ongoing autoimmunity, then you really know that you need to do something, be it naturally or a prescription drug to, to simulate the migrating motor complex to do its job and to fight against, you know, kind of the antibodies that seek to destroy it. And, and maybe like prokinetics. Yes, exactly. And maybe, you know, adopt more of an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. Cause you know, when we talk about SIBO and I know you want to talk about the diet element, it's a lot of focus on quote unquote, killing the bacteria or reducing the symptoms. And in my opinion, not enough attention paid to kind of where allergens fit in and kind of where people are on the autoimmune spectrum, because a lot of autoimmune diseases are precursors or risk factors for SIBO. And then SIBO because of the leaky gut thing can cause, you know, or be a risk factor itself for autoimmune diseases. So I do think it's kind of a disservice to not think about some of those bigger triggers, um, when you're talking about SIBO diets. Mm -hmm. And diet is an important part of treatment, but it's not the only, you can't yeah. just kind of eliminate a food, go on some sort of diet and it heals apart from the elemental diet. I think that's the only yeah. 
which isn't a real diet. It's just like a medical true. solution yeah. <laughs> like, that you drink. Exactly. So I do want to talk about the diets um, and starting with the low FODMAP diet. I think that's the most well-known. Yeah. Even in just the IBS world, that's sometimes what doctors recommend or dietitians yeah. put people on without doing the herbal side of things. So it may manage symptoms, but again, that alone isn't probably going to get rid of, well, it's not going to get rid of the SIBO. So can yeah. you talk about the low FODMAP diet and what you found after like all of your research and being in this world for a long time now? Do you think that it's effective? Um, how strict do you have to go? Just give it your overview. Yeah. Yeah. So the low FODMAP diet is essentially an acronym that includes various carbohydrates that, um, can be poorly digested, but oftentimes are like kind of all the no foods are like the yes foods for what microbiome specialists tell you to eat. So I'd heard about it, you know, a long time ago when I was certainly researching the last book, even like way before I'd heard of SIBO and it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Cause I was like, what this is literally the opposite of what every gut scientist tells you to eat. So I understand that it's, um, very data back for limiting IBS symptoms, but like, couldn't it just be because their guts are so damaged in the first place? Um, that was literally like a question I grappled with for a long time. And then when I learned about SIBO, it kind of made perfect sense to me. I was like, oh yeah, of course. Like if you feed bacteria, their favorite foods and they're in the wrong place, you're going to be miserable. Um, so it's not to say that everyone who goes on the low FODMAP diet and feels better has SIBO per se, but I do think it is maybe a reason to investigate further because, um, there are some other, other, causes that could make you not, you know, digest certain FODMAPs very well. Um, you could be missing like certain populations in your gut that help to digest them. But, you know, as far as common sense goes, like SIBO, you know, <laughs> is pretty compelling. Uh, so the low FODMAP diet, unfortunately, I feel like is much more well-known by like the traditional GI community than SIBO is even a, a, as a condition in and of itself. Um, because there is just like good data in terms of the efficacy for symptoms of IBS. Um, so it is a great tool in that sense to alleviate some of your misery. There is a bit of argument about why you would want to go on a diet like that if you're actively trying to kill bacteria. So if you're taking an antimicrobial anti or antibacterial treatment, um, you know, the diet itself isn't necessarily killing. It's more likely causing the critters to go into hibernation. Um, maybe some of them starve off, but it's not like a pure and simple technique for starvation. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that people think that they have to do this diet on top of treatment and they have to be really strict where, Whereas the reality is a lot of practitioners will not have people do the diet at all because they want, you know, to kill as many bacteria as possible. And then maybe they'll put them on it afterwards to kind of heal the gut and, um, you know, alleviate some of the symptoms. But I do think that like the correlation between symptoms and like how well a treatment is working, um, isn't necessarily like a true indicator for a lot of people. I mean, personally, like I got rid of my SIBO and was still like pretty symptomy afterwards, but like confirmed it was gone. Um, I think a lot of us, you know, unfortunately our guts just get really damaged in the process of having SIBO. It can just cause a lot of inflammation. So the benefit in my eyes of layering on some sort of diet during treatment, um, and afterwards is really just to heal, to allow, 
your immune system to recede um, so that, the, you know, it's, and allow just like the gases to go down. So they're not causing so much inflammation. Um, but it is a tricky, a tricky tightrope to walk. And I think kind of liberating yourself to the idea of like not being perfect on the diet during treatment is actually a good thing because you'll be keeping your bacteria on their toes is kind of the best way to go about it. It's like you're reducing your symptoms enough to not be miserable and to not have like really bad die off from all the treatment, but are not so rigid that you're not actually, you know, keeping whatever population is at play on their toes so that they can be killed. Mm -hmm. You don't need to you should, shouldn't be on like a standard Western diet still. You should clean everything up. But I do the exact same with my clients when we're treating gut infections and SIBO. We keep in, we keep the diet as broad as possible and just tweak any individual sensitivities at that point. Yeah. If they're obviously reacting very badly to garlic and onions, then we would stop them right away just for symptom relief. But the goal is ultimately to be able to tolerate them um, and have as diverse as good as yeah. possible but for those with um SIBO who maybe don't have the GI symptoms say they just have acne or um, chronic fatigue mm. syndrome those types of things do you feel like they can get better without any low FODMAP diet at all Sure. I think for those people, like again, symptoms were on the autoimmune spectrum. I would be looking at things that really helped leaky gut and, you know, limited allergens. Cause again, like the unfortunate reality is that leaky gut and SIBO kind of go hand in hand and leaky gut and food sensitivities kind of go hand in hand, leaky gut autoimmune disease and food sensitivities always go hand in hand. So to me, I, I think the low FODMAP diet is an incredible tool for symptoms, but it's really complex. Um, it's not like a regular allergen elimination diet. It's like a walk in the park, but you know, it can be easier to eat out, um, than trying to eat out without eating garlic and onions. Um, so I would, you know, address for those people, maybe some of the bigger guns like gluten, dairy, um, see how they behave or feel with their skin issues or whatever it is, however, it's presenting inflammation wise. Um, by taking out some of those things. And, you know, these types of food sensitivities are not necessarily lifelong as the leaky gut heals, as your gut becomes stronger. And this goes for FODMAPs too. You will be able to potentially tolerate these things again. Um, but it just helps sometimes just get your immune system reeled in to have a little bit of a break. And if you just keep narrowing down your diet and restricting, you're just going to develop more food sensitivities. So it's, um, a real big problem oh, when totally. people are down to like five, 10 foods and they're wondering why they can't heal. And it's literally because they've not got any nutrients coming in or energy and motility yeah. slows down. And that's yeah. just another risk factor for SIBO. Totally. And that was something I really want to address in my book because it is hard. It's like, it's hard to be given one set of guidelines like during this overgrowth and then to be like, but in reality, like your goal is to eat the complete opposite way. Um, but you know, people forget, I think that in order to heal, in order to repair, you need nutrients. And those nutrients are going to come from plants that have like beautiful colors. And, you know, a lot of which can be on the list of like healthy, no vegetables for the low FODMAP diet. So yes, absolutely. If something does not cause you misery, there's no reason to not eat it, especially if it's a really healthy food, like a vegetable or fruit. Do you love coffee, but have been told it's bad and needs to be avoided if you're struggling with hormone imbalances like acne, PMS, and period problems? Honestly, most coffee out there should be avoided. 
because the majority are contaminated with things like mold and pesticides, which can drive inflammation and those feelings like anxiousness and jitteriness after drinking. But what if I told you there was a coffee option that tastes great, is organic and mold free, and also provides healing properties from reishi mushroom spores? Enter Organo King Coffee, my latest obsession. I didn't drink it for years because it would always wreck my sleep and leave me feeling like an anxious mess. But King Coffee does the exact opposite. Don't worry, it's not one of those fake coffee alternatives made from herbs. And if you've tried other mushroom coffee brands out there, I promise this one actually tastes good and is way better and provides so many more health benefits. If you haven't already heard of the benefits of reishi mushroom or Ganoderma, then let me give you a quick overview. It's known as the king of medicinal mushroom family due to its superpowers such as supporting healthy immune balance and being an adrenal adaptogen. This means if your immune system's overactive due to autoimmunity, or suppressed because of things like chronic infections, and you're not really sure if your cortisol levels are high or low, the ratio can help to balance things out and it promotes homeostasis within the body. It's also antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, pretty much everything that we want from a product. Because of its potency, I'd recommend starting slowly if you're someone who's struggling with more complex chronic health issues or is sensitive. If you're thinking, why can't I just take a reishi mushroom supplement? Good question. Organo use a patented process to gently crack the inner and outer shell, offering 99% bioavailability of the reishi mushroom spores. I also explain this as being like the differences with probiotics. The regular lactobacillus, bifidobacterium options that we can all buy readily in health food shops have some benefit, but nowhere near as much as the spore-based probiotics that I use all the time with clients. Wanting to give Organo King Coffee a try for yourself? Visit vivanaturalhealth.myorganogold.com. This will all be spelled out and linked in the episode show notes and also my bio link on Instagram. I really hope you love it as much as I do, but now let's get back to the show. And can you give some of the examples of FODMAP foods? I know there's yeah. like different categories, um, just the most common ones and the highest FODMAP Yeah, maybe. so like the big guns are garlic, onion, um, leek, shallots, kind of anything in the allium family like you mentioned. Um, legumes, another big gun that just some people just don't do well with them. Um, and that can, again, because you're missing certain types of bacteria that are used to digest them in the large intestine. So I'd say that's another big category. Um, and then just certain inulin rich vegetables. So think of that things that are kind of woody, like asparagus, artichokes, um, Brussels sprouts, some of the crucifers, um, some nuts like cashews and pistachios can be really, um, irritating for people. Those are pretty high FODMAP, um, cauliflower and a lot of healthy stuff. <laughs> like it's interesting because it's, you know, people are making all these like cauliflower rice and cashew cheese and all these kind of veggie replacements. And, you know, I know a lot of people are really like struggling and think that they're, you know, doing what is quote unquote healthy and not eating grains and eating cauliflower instead, but maybe making themselves gassy and miserable as a result. That's exactly what happened with me, but with histamine, which I know mm. um, is something that you touch on as well, because I was reading like five plus years back about how to heal the gut. So I was doing bone broth every day, 
fermented food to every meal, kombucha, (laughs) and my skin was so inflamed, so itchy. I had like reflux and migraines, and I thought I was detoxing. (laughs) I was like, through this is my body trying to heal. And yeah, (laughs) turns out I had a huge histamine issue, and all of those foods were not great for me at that moment in time. And I'm still dealing with some ongoing um, sensitivities to them, but eliminating the SIBO was a huge yeah Did you totally that connection yeah so histamine is kind of similar to bacteria it's like it's well histamine is something we naturally produce in the body and use for a variety of different functions um so when we have too much histamine we can feel it in certain areas so in our you know in our sneezing and mucus production but then also in our menstrual cycle and in our gut um so essentially you're constantly eating histamine through your diet and taking new histamine. Um, your body's also producing histamine. And then you have kind of these enzymes that help to break down histamine if you have too much. So basically like kind of your regulator. Um, so with SIBO, the bacteria carry their own level of histamine. So you're already adding kind of more to the plant just with their existence. Um, then you are also usually, you know, the enzyme is produced in the VLI of the intestine. So if you have damaged gut, you may not be able to produce that enzyme as well. So that's going to prevent you from, you know, actually getting rid of excess histamine and then a low FODMAP diet, since you're taking a lot of vegetables off the table, it actually does point you to a lot of foods that are naturally higher in histamine. Um, and also gut healing things like bone broth and whatnot. Um, so histamine is something that usually accumulates more in aged foods. So besides like just natural, um, amounts in certain vegetables, like aged meats or, long simmered stocks and broths. Um, it's a lot usually with just animal products, um, can make you have more histamine, histamine counts. So, you know, a good example is like tomatoes, they have their own (laughs) level of histamine. Then if you can them or preserve them in some way, they're going to have even more concentrated histamine. Um, so kind of similar to low FODMAP though, it's like you could unwittingly just by way of your diet, just be eating a ton of histamine without realizing it. So like one example is like, if you had like a perfectly healthy dinner of like gluten-free pasta with tomato sauce and a spinach salad and a glass of wine, like that is a histamine. That's like, there's nothing wrong with that meal, but it's like a histamine powerhouse. I would Um, wake up with acne and migraines, no doubt. (laughs) So I think, you know, it it could be that some people, especially some people who like whittle themselves down to a few foods are just like eating a ton of histamine without realizing it. Um, and same with like FODMAPs. It's like, Oh, if you're eating just like a a head of cauliflower for dinner every night, um, cause you're just not diversifying your plate enough that can make you miserable. Um, So I think for all of these things, there is like kind of a first step that's not going on a strict diet, but that's just like taking things down a notch. When I was first researching SIBO like many years back again, um, I heard about hydrogen sulfide, but there really wasn't a lot of information at that point Mm. on it. It was mainly the hydrogen, which you said you were dominant in. I was more dominant in the methane upon testing, but I did resonate with some of the symptoms of hydrogen sulfide because I know they can differ a little bit and a little bit more unique. Um, What's the connection with the sulfur in the diet as well? Is that something that, like, how do you know if that's something that you need to eliminate or be mindful of? 
Yeah. So that's specific to the hydrogen sulfide SIBO. So kind of similar to histamine, like we have hydrogen sulfide in the body, like it is naturally there and like totally hunky dory. But if you have a clogged sulfur pathway, it can cause a certain buildup. So the idea of reducing the sulfur in your diet is similar to histamine. It's just to kind of unclog the pathway to like rebalance things in a way. And that can help take care of the overgrowth in and of itself. Um, not usually without treatment, but other types of treatment, but it definitely, definitely helps with symptoms. Um, so actually in my book, I have, I painstakingly went through all of these dietary labels for the recipes. So it's all marked for low histamine. It's all marked for low sulfur and yeast and candida friendly. Um, since so many of these, you know, strange diets do dovetail with SIBO healing. So, um, if any of these things are things that you deal with. Um, there are 90 recipes in the book and a good amount that can be adapted for those diets. Yeah. Cause otherwise you're just looking at lists online. There's like yeah. five lists you're trying to cross-reference. Can I have oh, this? Yeah. Oh no, it's not. It's on this list. I can't have it. Or I can just have like two handfuls. Yeah. Serving sizes are important as well, aren't they? So exactly it be that you can tolerate five cashews, but a whole jar of cashew butter, probably not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And introducing foods needs to be done pretty slowly because if you've not eaten anything for a period of time, your body kind of loses yeah. the ability to break it down. It's like a foreign thing to it. So how do you know whether a food is working okay and it's just your body temporarily adjusting to it or like say with bloating or if it's a no-go, like you're sensitive to it and it needs to be kept out? Yeah, I think it's like a, t a tricky thing for people, but um, one of the dietitians who I interviewed, who's like one of the queens of low FODMAP diet, you know, she really emphasized like a little bit of bloating is not a failed test. Like a failed test is like something severe, like running to the bathroom with diarrhea or like the next day waking up and like having a really, really bad tummy. Um, a little bit of bloating again, could just be the readjustment period and it might get better over time, just as your body like becomes used to the ingredient again. Um, of course, you know, if it's really uncomfortable, like SIBO level bloating, maybe that's not great. Maybe you still have SIBO. I don't know. Um, but like just a little bit, I think it's, you have to always kind of weigh the pros and cons for everything in your life. But if you know that eating a diverse diet is the most important overall thing for your gut health, I mean, a little bit of bloating to me is not worth, you know, the potential benefits I'm getting from eating more foods. And the post SIBO inflammation is real. I was in, in the exact same camp as you thinking that I still had SIBO. And I was, I was working with a practitioner at the time and I was convinced that I still had it. I was asking for more treatment and she was like, no, let's just test. I know it's, it can be expensive to keep testing after every round of treatment, but um, I actually didn't have SIBO anymore. And it was just that my gut was inflamed. Yeah. And then there's the, the opposite side as well, where people think that they're fine, their bloating's gone, but the SIBO is actually still there. Mm and it can come back as well. So could you talk yeah. a little bit about testing and the best options that you see? Yeah, so breath testing is the main way to diagnose SIBO. It's not a perfect science. Every lab kind of has different criteria, different prep instructions. It's a little bit of the wild west, but it is kind of the best thing we have to see the progress. And I think that's really important because unfortunately not every treatment works for every person. I mean. 
our microbiome in our large intestine is more unique than a fingerprint. Um, that I would say means that whatever is overgrowing further up can also be just as different from one another. So your SIBO may not behave the same way as my SIBO in terms of treatments. Um, you may have to do several rounds and keep retargeting certain populations. Um, so I do think that testing is useful in that way to see if something is actually working. Cause otherwise, how would you know? Since again, the symptoms can be a bit deceptive. Of course, if your symptoms are amazing and like you feel great and you don't have anything insidious, like acne or what have you, you know, maybe it's not worth retesting. Maybe you want to go on living your life, but personally, even though it is expensive, I prefer to have the information. Um, and then also a big overlapping condition with SIBO is a fungal or yeast overgrowth. Um, cause again, the same mechanics that go wrong in the digestive system can cause anything to back up and overgrow. Um, and that is really hard to test for. So I do think it is interesting that if you if you have symptoms still, it's important to retest for SIBO because if it's gone, maybe that's an indication that you have um, other things overgrowing that you need to address. Are there any telltale signs that it could be yeast or fungal as opposed to bacterial? It's really hard. I mean, I think the best way to differentiate is to do like a mini diet test to see if taking out some of the yeast and mold producing foods um, you know, have an impact. So there's a recommendation for that in my book. It's pretty easy. You only have to do it for a few days, similar to histamine. I mean, you can see improvements um, or differences right away. Um, so yeah, same, similar to histamine, there's just kind of a grouping of foods that wouldn't necessarily bother you on, um, on a SIBO diet, but would be still irritating if you were sensitive to, if you had an overgrowth of yeast and a sensitivity to mold. That's the good thing with some of these diets. You don't have to be on them for three months oh, yeah, to notice no. the difference. Within a week of going low histamine for me, I went pretty strict because I wanted to see whether it was worth the effort or not. Um, my my cystic acne pretty much cleared within one week. Wow. So at first That's I was amazing. like, I found the answer. Like I just have to stay low histamine for the rest of my life. But then I had to actually address the problem, which was SIBO, mold, exposure, yeah. all of these things. Um, what about probiotics? So you mentioned fermented foods and how they can be a problem, but they can actually ha be helpful with yeah. digestive issues. Um, some practitioners are, they promote the use of probiotics during treatment, again, for that kind of immune support and the migrating motor complex, whereas others, they just say no probiotics at all until treatment's over. Where do you stand? Yeah. I mean, the majority of people I think err on the latter side of just not including probiotics, um, because lacto bifido blends, which are the most popular over the counter variety, you know, tend to be the same types of bacteria that overgrow in the case of SIBO. Um, that said, you know, for people who are really savvy about certain strains, um, you can absolutely use probiotics and prebiotics. I would say that's like the vast minority of practitioners. So if you're working with someone who's really savvy, like go for it. Um, if you're have someone who's literally just recommending an over the counter product, like I would be a little bit wary. Um, the beauty of probiotics is again, like there's so, there's so many different types, so many different strains and they each have different functions. So there are certain ones that have a function that can help your migrating motor complex. Um, 
you know, kick back into gear. That can be like a natural prokinetic. There are some that can be like kind of antibacterial in and of themselves. Um, but the average person is not going to know to look for like X, Y, Z, one, two, three, four, five strain. Like, so, um, there's an incredible practitioner in Australia, Dr. Jason Haralak, who's really smart. And he's got a site called the probiotic advisor. Um, and I think some practitioners working on him in his practice. So he's kind of like the go-to for, for healing with probiotics. Um, prebiotics, I think are a little bit more, um, user-friendly and, partially hydrolyzed guar gum PHGG has shown in studies to actually increase the efficacy of, um, rifaximin, which is the main antibiotic for SIBO. I personally think per our discussion before, it's probably because it's feeding the bacteria and making them, you know, more susceptible to being killed off. Um, but it happens to be a prebiotic that's mostly tolerated by SIBO people. Um, so I think that's great, you know, adding anything in that can feed the population of good bacteria in your large intestine at the same time without causing too many symptoms, um, from an overgrowth of SIBO is probably pretty positive. And I'd say that's a pretty good, um, segue, uh, after SIBO healing, um, probiotics. I know people will go on afterwards to kind of heal their gut. And I do think that those are something that you have to like take a little bit slowly, um, especially the fermented foods. Just in my personal experience, I like had to go like drink like just like a shot glass of kombucha going forward versus the whole bottle. Um, but yeah, it's something that is definitely part of a healing diet overall, but may need to like slowly level up um, to incorporate fully. I agree with the PHGG. I, I use that quite a lot with clients and Probiotics, I only use the microbiome labs ones, the Megaspore, yeah, the bacillus strains. They actually have some antibacterial effects. So I kind of call them adaptogens in the gut. They just go in there, they boost levels if things are too low, they reduce things that are getting too high because they kind of know our gut environment and what is normal. Yeah. They're the only ones that I use. And they're often well tolerated, but you have to start sometimes by opening up the capsule and sprinkling them yeah. in because they're quite powerful as well. Yeah, totally. And if someone does go through treatment, let's say that they were tolerating a few FODMAPs and they've done the herbs or they've done the conventional antibiotics, then they decide to do or the practitioner advises a low FODMAP diet post-treatment just to reduce symptoms, keep things at bay for a period of time. How long can someone stay on that for? I mean, I wouldn't stay on it for more than two months. I think that's what the studies have shown is when it starts to be detrimental to your overall gut health, the health of your bacteria in your large intestines. And I get messages from people who have been on it for like years and years. And I'm just like, ah, I worry for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, the idea of these diets that they're supposed to be therapeutic. You're supposed to learn something from them. So you can't learn something from them if you're too afraid to reintroduce. Um, there may be a few things that you have issues with going forward and you may want to, you know, find ways around, um, a lot of, you know, some people it's garlic and onion and you have to just like really slowly level up or, you know, just know that if you're going to go to an Italian restaurant, you may like not be feeling great afterwards. Um, but the reintroductions and the quantities are so, so key for, for learning your own threshold. And with the other diets, I wanted to talk about SCD, so specific carbohydrate diet and GAPS. I know they're a little bit similar and they cross over. What, how do we know if we have to choose one of those? 
Yeah. So in my book, I kind of take you through like, you know, what each of them is about. It's really a personal, a personal choice. Low FODMAP is definitely the most um, popular. SED is more of like a paleo approach. So it's like paleo plus. So you're taking out starchy vegetables, potatoes as well. Um, and really just only focusing on, you know, green vegetables and such. And that can honestly not be great for some SIBO people because you're increasing the amounts of certain high FODMAP foods that you might be eating. Um, so it really, again, it comes down to your own personal tolerances. Um, if you're still feeling symptomatic on SCD, maybe that's not the right avenue for you. Personally, I feel like with hormone health, that low carb diets, super low carb diets are not great for women. Um, and I think they're just like really not necessary for the large portion of SIBO people. Um, I think Unfortunately, a lot of people find their way to Dr. Allison Seebecker and Dr. Jacoby who have kind of diets that are cross sections of SCD and low FODMAP and they're amazing tools, but like, these are practitioners who see like the most stubborn <laughs> cases of SIBO out there. Um, for the average person, I wouldn't say that they're necessary. Yeah, I agree. What are your thoughts on antimicrobial foods? So do you feel like it's enough to just like megadose your um, diet with basil or basil, thyme, oregano, oregano, like all of I these mean, herbs. totally. I'm always a fan of eating your nutrients, but in the case of SIBO, usually you have to <laughs> supplement too. Okay. Um, but they're great things to keep in your diet. Like we assimilate things better when eating them than just taking a pill. So it absolutely can't hurt. Um, rosemary, oregano, all great options. Um, and yeah, I, I, include tons of fresh herbs in the book for that reason, just like in hedging your bets and getting a lot of different benefits at once. It could just be a way to keep things at bay once it's yeah. been cleared. It's not going to clear out a ton of overgrowth yeah. in, the, in, in the intestines. Yeah. On the subject of lifestyle, are there any key important points that over the years you've just found to be really um, crucial for overcoming or preventing SIBO relapse? Yeah. I mean, I think the lifestyle stuff is way more important than the what of the diet. It's much more important how you're eating it. So, you know, just again, <laughs> eating the way we we're designed to eat. So chewing our food, um, in a, some sort of relaxed state, not too distracted, not stressed. A lot of people reintroducing foods, you know, can have a reaction through a self-fulfilling prophecy of stress, not the actual food itself. Um, meal spacing, I think is really important for SIBO folks. Um, the migrating motor complex just on its own and its best shape will not kick in unless you've been in a fasting state of 90 minutes or more. So there are a lot of people, I mean, especially in this country, like snacking, I think is an epidemic that is just not natural. <laughs> um, but even if you're eating the healthiest thing, like a carrot stick every 30 minutes, you know, you're just, your digestive system just never going to be able to clean up after that meal. Um, so having, you know, three to five hours between meals, ideally the longer, the better, um, and eating bigger meals, if that is what's needed to keep you satiated, I think is the smarter move. And rather than doing like crazy intermittent fast where you go like three days without eating, why not no. just start with a 12 hour overnight fast? I think yeah. most people can tolerate that just fine. Yes, exactly. And I always end on the podcast with a few questions for you personally. So the first one is what's one supplement or food that you couldn't personally live without? Uh, fresh lemons. Okay. They're so amazing. Yeah. Not had that one yet. Oh, oh yeah. They're absolutely delicious. But then also like, they're so great from an antiviral, antimicrobial standpoint. 
Very true. What's your go-to breakfast? Oh man, it changes. I do kind of like a, a low sugar berry smoothie or, um, a scrambled or scramble or fried egg over like some frozen sauteed vegetables. That's like my lazy. My Very lazy similar to mine. It yeah. does the job. Totally. What's something that you're into lately? So this could be health related, completely random. Okay. Um, I'm obsessed, especially in COVID quarantine with my sauna blanket. It's probably the most expensive like wellness item I've ever purchased for my house, but is like the best investment ever. Is that um, like an infrared? My, infrared yeah, sauna? but it's like a it's like it's like a sleeping bag um, that functions as an infrared sauna. Um, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're amazing. Oh, yeah. We, I do it like once a week, once or twice a week. My husband does it once or twice a week. So I, I think it pays for itself when you use it frequently. It you could charge him like $10 an hour. Exactly. <laughs> and I'd have made my money back. Yes. It was a birthday <laughs> gift. So I should definitely start charging him. <laughs> and what company, what brand is that from? A uh, higher dose. I can send yeah. you yeah. the I'll link to it. It's amazing. going to be interested. And very last question, Phoebe, is where can people find you online and grab your book? Simple. Yeah. So my website where I have lots of free recipes and SIBO resources is feedmephoebe.com. You can find my podcast there too. And then the book is SIBO Made Simple. If you go to SIBOMadeSimple.com, you can find links to buy. And then also I have a free gut heal boot camp for early bird folks. So it'll be around, I think for another month. So if you go there, you can enter your order receipt and join a fantastic group of SIBO amigos, um, on Facebook and get kind of a great five day primer on how to get your gut issues under control. Amazing. That sounds like an amazing free, free gift. So thank you for sharing all of your information with us today. I know it's going to be really valuable to a lot of people. Thank you so much for having me. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrollment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.